<laughs> and you can watch the other actors around him just trying their best not to laugh. Oh, they do. But it's all live audience, so you have no... And half of it's just ad-lib. So you just... <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. So... I don't know. He was here earlier. Oh, you're doing yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love those colors. It's time for St. Patty's Day. I know. So I did a couple of square. My mom used to call us smoked Irish. <laughs> Very good.
looking shirt. Good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. I'm Pastor Bruce. If we've not met yet, welcome. Glad you're here and online. Welcome to all of you as well. And I know others will be coming in slowly as the morning unfolds. Uh, just to let you know that daylight savings time begins next Sunday, so make sure you spring forward and all of that. And uh, it's also in your outlines. In the outlines at the very end, there's a little list of events coming up through March. And I hope that you'll keep that, cut that part out, stick it on your fridge or on a mirror or something. That'll help you uh, keep up with the ongoing activities and the worship and the ministries of the church. So, um, and then it's also online, firstpressoc.org. So we try and keep all that current for you and to help us all grow and learn and thrive together. So with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so very, very much for drawing us into your presence today together. We thank you, Father, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united in our faith in Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We pray now that our hearts and minds will be transformed by the truth of your word and the living inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we can give you glory always, now and forever, Father. For your name is great, and your mission is unstoppable, and your miracles are happening around the world and in our own lives. 
We thank you so much for what you're doing, and we thank you that we can participate in what you are doing and who you are. We give you glory. Thank you for this privilege of worship together. For your name's sake, amen. Let's sing. Let's stand. Jenny's got a sore throat, so she's going to have to do sign language today.
this morning for a time to come together to worship you. Lord, we're not here just to glean and to get, but to give, give an offering of praise, a sacrifice of praise, because you're so worthy. Lord, all the grace, all the goodness and the mercy that we receive from you, Lord, how can we express our thanks for you, for all that you've done for us? So, Lord, please accept our our offering of us, our sacrifices of worship this morning. We love you so. Amen. Thank you. 
Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, God, so much for being our Lord and our Savior, our Messiah. Father, you've revealed yourself to us and to the world around us in ways that we've recognized because your Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see, ears to hear, an understanding and a spiritual awakening, Lord God, that you birthed us from above. You've given us a living spirit by your grace. And thank you, Lord, that your witness is active around the world in creation itself. I was just enjoying, as maybe we all were, the beautiful big snowflakes that fell for a little while yesterday and then melted away. God, the beauty and the creativity and the wonder of what you've done and do and will do just inspires us. And we thank you, God, especially for the cross of Christ, that we could come to worship you because by your grace, you have declared us to be right with you. You've adopted us as your sons and daughters, that you hang on to us even when we seek to flee and we're rascally and do things we shouldn't and should do things that we didn't do. God, you love us. You forgive us. You cherish us. And your joy, Lord God, abounds in us and flows into us and through us. And we thank you so much that peace that every heart longs for can be found through Christ Jesus our Lord with meaning and purpose, identity, and with community. Thank you for what you've done and are doing. And thank you, God, that Christ is coming again and all will be just perfect. That gives us hope and always does. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please be seated. We have, I think I'll do a couple, let's see. Let's do the Apostles' Creed, and then let's have the bells play after that. Do you read this together with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Praise the Lord.
If you know the words, you know your immortal gladness and all kinds of things popping through there. That's, that's worship from the heart. Now, the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school, Gabe Middleton High Schoolers. Good to see you here. A uh, couple of announcements as they're heading out. And parents, if you're new, you can feel free to go down the hall and make sure they feel very comfortable. And then come on back up. Daylight Savings, again, starts next Sunday. Laura Kirk is in labor this morning, so she's going to have her baby prayerfully today. So very excited for them and all the family. Uh, commission meetings are today after church. Uh, depends, maybe 11.45 or sooner. We'll start off in the fireside room with prayer and orientation, and then we can go to different spots in the church to cover different topics like Christian education, buildings and grounds, um, missions, that sort of thing. There's fellowship, there's worship. So there's all those, there's five choices. Um, worship probably won't be meeting today. We've got Jenny sick and stuff, and Pete's got to get going. So we will uh, invite you to stay. I've got bagels, cream cheese, ham, turkey, mustard, um, chips, goodies for those that are staying and don't want to starve. I will feed you. Um, even got gluten-free loaf of bread down there and a toaster. How's that sound? So we're thinking of as many as we can. Uh, sorry, no fruits and vegetables, because I did the shopping. Um, <laughs> but turkey and ham and, and that kind of thing. So uh, we just want you to at least uh, get through lunch without feeling too hungry. And that's a really important thing to do, to stay and participate. Maybe you just want to listen and familiarize yourself. Maybe you want to spend time in prayer. Uh, maybe you've got an idea for the kitchen or the fellowship hall. Uh, all kinds of different things could be talked about and discussed because this is actually when stuff happens. This is when things get the momentum and the evaluations and the transformations that they need. So if you're interested in ministries of any sort, please come to the fellowship hall, get a snack or two or whatever, and then come into the fireside room and we'll open in prayer and get started. Also, we have an Alpha course coming up, as you can see, in April, a, a little over a month away. Uh, Alpha is for those that are needing an introduction to the Christian faith. It's people in your family that maybe you know are neighbors or friends or coworkers. That's a great opportunity for them to come. If you just want to grow in your faith, that's great too. But it's really designed as an outreach for those that don't know Christ yet. It's very open, pleasant, affirming. Uh, any question is good. Any attitude is fine. We'll provide dinner each night during those weeks. So um, think about that. It's free, uh, basically. Um, I'm not even sure they have to pay for a book anymore. So very, very inexpensive. I mean, free is always a good price, right? So 
be sure to come. Also, the Kairos course is coming up starting April the 25th from 6.30 to 9. I really encourage those of you that are believers in Christ already to really consider taking that. You, you maybe need a little kick in the pants, I guess you could say, because it's going to do a little homework and it's going to cost you a little bit of money, but something that's really worthwhile is simply that worth it. Um, I've read the Perspectives book, which is a nice big thick one on missions and how it plays through the Bible and lots of examples in world history. The Kairos course is a bit of that in miniature, but it, it'll help you find your way forward in your faith and walk with Christ if you're, if you're uh, wanting to grow. I think it's a great growth opportunity. We'll hear more about that later. And then um, keep your outlines, as I said, because at the bottom of that you'll see the events coming up, I guess, through April, I meant to say. so. We'll try and keep everything current, and also you can always check our website, firstpressoc.org. We keep that up as well, and um, hope that benefits everybody. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Romans 14, 17 to 23. We're finishing what we began last Sunday. If you weren't here last Sunday, all this is recorded. You can go to our website and look at sermon outlines and see what the paperwork is in case you want to download it. You can also look for sermons live, and there's an archive there. And I think it goes back like three years or something, so you'll be able to find it. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we come to your word as our brothers and sisters have done through 2,000 years, and we know that this word for us today is relevant. It's very pertinent. It's relational, personally with you and interpersonally with each other. And we pray, Lord, that these words will transform our minds, that these words will inform our attitudes and our actions and our, our lives, Lord, will mirror Christ's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is the middle section where I went through verse 16 last Sunday, looking at how the weak and the strong, what are the strong? The strong are those whose conscience doesn't bother them or traditions in matters that the Bible doesn't say anything about, pro or con, uh, definitely just a neutral area there, so you can decide for yourself. And the strong don't have any druthers about that. The weak, though, that doesn't mean they're immature in their faith. It just means that their conscience or their traditional expectations or understandings won't let them do certain things that other Christians are free to do. And you can imagine some of the conflicts that that could create when the groups are together in the same place, participating in the same things. So in the middle of it all, Paul takes a break, and that's where we're going to start today, talking about the kingdom of God and the values of God's kingdom. So let's read now the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not 
come from faith is what? Is sin. What is the kingdom of God? You know, how about you? Have you just blown right through that? You've seen Matthew would read the kingdom of heaven because it was written mostly for a Jew Jewish readership, right? And they don't use God's name, so there's a substitution there with the kingdom of heaven. Luke is writing more to the Gentile community, the non-Jewish community, so he says kingdom of God, it's the same thing. And you can read it over and over and over, and in the Gospels, it's quite frequent. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. You see that over and over. Outside the Gospels, it's not so common. You may not have realized that. When you start reading Acts and so on through the New Testament, the kingdom of God doesn't show up as often in terms of title. So what is the kingdom of God, and why is it so prevalent in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but not so much so in Acts and thereafter through Revelation? It's an interesting question. So what is the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of God. It's the first outline point. The rule and reign of God. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe we think of Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria or King Charles, and we think about how old they lived and how long they reigned. And there is a dis difference in meaning between rule and reign. The rule means I make the rules. The reign is how long. Since God has no beginning or end, how long will God's reign last? Forever and ever and ever. Who makes the rules? God does. God tells us what's ethical and what is unethical. Christ modeled that for us. So we get our, our information, our understanding, our behavioral limits, the fences that God has put up to prevent us from hurting or harming ourselves or anybody else. Love, in essence, God tells us what love is and what love does, and we can live into that, and God makes the rules, and he reigns. So ultimately, in its biggest, broadest sense, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. That's the easiest way that I can think of to explain it. Psalm 103:19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So his kingdom is vast, it's all creation. Now the second thing that you'll note in your outlines is this, the messianic reign of Jesus. The kingdom of God is also known to be the messianic reign of Jesus and rule and reign of Jesus, if you want to put it all out there. Matthew 3, 1 through 2, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent. And what did he say? This is in Matthew, remember, so kingdom of God is kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near. Does that strike you as odd? Near, not here? How about another one? Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Not here. So is God not everywhere? Is God not near and here? Or is God waiting for something? Is there no rule and reign of God everywhere? Is it sort of close but not quite there? Obviously there's more to this than meets the eye, right? So let's look at another one. Jesus taught us to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done 
right, on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying then for the rule and the reign of God to be perfectly at work in the future. So that's a future prayer and a longing that the entirety of God's rule and reign will be manifested and present and evident in every way. No more sin, no more darkness, no more despair, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. That's what we're praying for. That's what the kingdom's all about. So these verses teach us that the kingdom of God is actually related to the messianic reign of Christ. You could almost, some say, and I've read this in some commentaries, you could almost, not in all cases, but in almost all cases, you could insert Jesus' name for the kingdom of God in those gospel sections. Not always, but frequently you could. Look, for example, in Luke 17, <clears throat> excuse me, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, when's it going to show up? And of course they expected a material, political, economic, and military reign, an earthly kingdom like a king or queen that we would might, might think of. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Who's in their midst right there? Jesus is talking. Where's the kingdom of God manifested? Where's the Holy Spirit reside? The living presence of God in the heart of every believer, right? So he's saying, I am central to everything we're talking about in terms of our interaction with the kingdom. The rule and reign of Jesus lies then in our hearts. And it's true in the kingdom of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. This isn't just a New Testament idea. It goes back into the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament expect? The Old Testament expected that the kingdom of God would be the inbreaking of the Messiah into this world. Into a broken world, the Messiah would come and rescue us and restore what God intends. That's what the Old Testament said. And Christ came, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. And remember in Acts chapter 2, I think it was chapter 2, guessing now, the apostles said to the angel, you know, or to Jesus, is this now when you're going to bring your kingdom back? Is this when the, the reign is going to begin? And Jesus says, no, and he ascends into heaven. He's coming back. That's when it's going to happen. We then, in the Old Testament sense, are still living in that longing and desire with the certain hope, because Christ came once, he's coming back. And when he comes back, then that's where our joy is, that we can weather anything in this world because of the joy of what's to come. That's the certainty of our salvation and the presence of God. So the Messiah, who is that? It's Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with those terms, Christ is not his last name. Christ just means the same thing as Savior or Messiah. They're all synonyms, depending upon the language you want to use. So he's our Lord and our Savior. What does that make us? His servants, right? We serve the Lord. He's our rule maker. He's the one who reigns forever and ever. He's our Lord. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he's my ruler and he reigns over my life forever and ever and ever. He's my king. So it's already and not yet. That's a, a phrase that was used in seminary a lot. The already and the not yet. We live in the promise of what's to come with the surety of history. We know that Jesus lived. We know that Jesus died. We know that he rose from the grave. And you can find literature outside the Bible 
that affirms the life and the death of Jesus. And then there's the, and they're not going to come out and just say it, but there's evidence to show that the church exploded with the resurrection of Jesus. The Romans thought they'd stamped it out, and suddenly it just took off and like a fan in a flame. The church took off, and there was no explaining it aside from the resurrection of Jesus. So what's our job? What do servants of the kingdom do? Well, we magnify the Lord for the world to see God more clearly. Our behaviors, our attitudes, the words we use, this is what we want to do. We want to have kingdom values at work for the world to see, not arguments over disputable things, non-essential matters. We don't want to confuse the love, and the, the, the love of God and the love of Jesus in our hearts, that we don't want to show the world the wrong message. Are there differences on non-essential issues? Well, there would, there would have to be, or Paul wouldn't have written this. And there would be in any church and between any two people, there are differences. How do we get along? What do we do with this? Well, Paul says, take your mind off of those for a minute. They're, they're important, and they're part of who you are, and they're not wrong in themselves, but let's look at some values that supersede all those other differences. And so that's the second point, or the third point I want to make, the kingdom's values. The kingdom's values. John Calvin said the task of the church, and he's not talking about the institutional church. He's talking about we as Christians in community. That's really the church. When we gather together, that's what church is. And he says the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible, to magnify God by the values we live by, by the gospel, the good news that we communicate, and as we magnify the Lord, we pray and pray and pray that the Holy Spirit will bring more and more people to the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. And there are three values he mentions. First of all, the kingdom of God's value first is with righteousness. Righteousness. It's a basic legal term. If you were dragged into court in the first century, and you were exonerated and the judge declared you not guilty, the language would be that the judge declares you to be righteous. There is no crime here. And by the grace of God, God declares us righteous. And so the world needs to see that, that we're saved by grace. We're the only faith belief on the planet that says we're saved by an act of God and not our own. That is such a foreign concept then for everybody that they need to understand through our actions and our words and our attitudes that thank God for grace. We're not perfect. We're not trying to achieve our salvation. We're not trying to say that we have a better, a better church or a better ethic or a better way of living, a better bunch of rules and regulations. We're saying we're saved first and foremost by the grace of God, a free gift. And we live in that humble state of blessed assurance that we're right with God. And the world doesn't have that. And that's something we can bring to those around us. Romans 12, 2 tells us that to please God, we need to do this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, which is basically, if you want to talk about spiritual patterns, that's karma. The world's pattern is works, achievement. I'm going to get to heaven based on my goodness. 
That's a karma thought. You get what you deserve. And I don't care what religion it is, it's all tied to that basic thought, except for ours, our faith in Jesus. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The first one is kind of a coercive pressure. We're swimming in these waters. It affects our thinking. The attitudes around us affect our attitudes, our behaviors. We're swimming in these waters of karma thinking and attitudes and sinful attitudes and darkness, the Bible would describe it. Well, what we want to do instead is listen and be transformed, and the word is metamorphosis, to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. Let that dominate our thinking. What does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord, how does he want me to behave? What attitude does God want me to have? How do I exercise this? These are coming from the Holy Spirit and his word, right? So we're going to renew our mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Not somebody else's, not your pastor, not your spouse, not your coworkers, not anybody else. You'll know what God wants. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The key lies between our ears. What is going on in the noggin, so to speak? That is a very critical instrument that God has given us, and we don't want to violate that or ruin it. And so we want to have a transformed mind by the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament gives us lots of examples. The Old Testament does too. You know, if you've, if you've been around a while, and I've been here for a while, you know that I love the Old Testament. And I feel kind of sad when somebody says, I can't stand the Old Testament. I don't like reading it. All that blood and gore and mayhem. Let me tell you something. Blood and gore and mayhem is a consequence of human sin. What's going on in our world now? Don't we see it all over the place? That's not different. The Bible's not some weird bird that's floating around out there in the ocean somewhere. Think it should fly, but it's sinking in the water. It's just no good. It's old. It's Old Testament. It's dusty. It's in the trash bin. The new is where it's at. God's love is over here. And it's so wrong. You know what I see in the Old Testament? Real people with real problems and real failings and real issues, hiccups and hang-ups, I like to call them, just like me. And then I read, and God loves them forgives them, provides for them, sometimes disciplines them as they should be, but only because he loves them and means the best for them. And I find such hope there that inspires me every day. You have to read it like a narrative. It's a longer stretch of material you have to read. And the New Testament's real like that. The Old Testament's more like our story. You gotta get used to a different pace. But it's wonderful, and I encourage you to not ignore the Old Testament because what's in the Old Testament? The kingdom of God pointing to the Messiah that when we read the New Testament, the aha light goes on, and you say, there he is. This is what God's aim has been ever since Genesis 3, to lead us out of the darkness into his marvelous light that we can declare his praise. That's what God is doing, and that's the kingdom of God at work. And I'm so grateful with that then, with this righteous declaration that by God's grace through faith in Jesus, God says you are not guilty, your sins are forgiven, you are right with God now and forever. Praise the Lord. The second one then is a consequence. It's peace. Peace. Not UN peace. 
not any other sort of peace like the absence of conflict, or not when a parent says to a noisy bunch of kids, please, please, can I have some peace? What we mean is quit stressing me out. I want some quiet. I need to get my head together. My brain is rattled. I just need some quiet, some space. Even if you have to sit in your car, you've got to get away from it. That is not the peace that Paul's writing about. The virtue here is, and you may know this much better, is the Hebrew behind it, shalom. That is the value of the kingdom. It's perfect wellness in every sense of the word, emotional, physical, spiritual, mental, everything bound together in perfect harmony and perfect health and perfect well-being. That is a value that brought Christ to the cross as well as our righteousness, to make everything right. And shalom is what the world needs. It's not just calm or soothing or relaxation without conflict or stress. It's not the absence of conflict. It's peace with God through faith in Jesus, and everything will be made right. How many of you have been to a memorial service where the minister mentions the book of Revelation? And it's usually towards the end of that book that's referenced. And it's this God saying, I'm making all things new. Praise the Lord. No more, what? No more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death. It's all gone. That is the kingdom of God that we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer every week. We're looking forward to that great moment. That's the kingdom of God. And then the third one is joy. Kara is the Greek. It's like charismatic. You get those kara-based words out of that. Kara is emotional. How many of us are unemotional about the return of Jesus? Eh, yeah, I could take it or leave it. I'm kind of neutral on the whole thing. He'll show up. It's okay. It's cool. If he does, he does. No, of course we're emotional about it, especially when you're hurting. Come, Lord Jesus. Now would be a great time. Now would be great. I'd love it to meet my Savior face to face. Wow. That'll be so cool. That's why I think he wipes every tear from our eyes, because I think we're either weeping with joy or we're weeping with, wow, I can't believe he saved me. That's a wonderful, loving Savior, and we're going to meet him. It's so cool. Kara. It isn't circumstantial. It's this constant, abiding confidence that I belong to Jesus and either I'm going to see him first face to face or he's coming back sooner than I'll be passing away. Regardless, I'll be with Jesus forever. That is my joy. And that lightens my load. Stuff happens at church. If you're a leader in a church, you know that you're kind of on point for a lot of things. Leadership can be lonely. And leadership is also a challenge point by the demonic, right? That they don't want us to be successful. The demons don't. So, you feel it and you experience it, and sometimes it can be very difficult. But in those moments, you realize, but Jesus has got this. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Remind your kids, they think it's me. Tell them it's Jesus, okay? Help me out. So teach your kids, encourage each other, pray for each other. There is nothing so difficult or so unwieldy or so disappointing that God is not at work through it. God allows a lot of things, but can anything thwart, stop, slow down the return of Jesus? I can only think of one thing that might slow down the return of Jesus, and that is that we're not out there sharing the word of Christ around the world. Matthew 24, 14, 
then the end will come. You can check out that reference yourself. Sharing the word of God around the world, and when God sees, according to God's design, rule and reign, that we've done that, then we're very close to the return of Jesus. That's one of the benchmarks that Jesus gave us, and that's one of our roles. So Romans 12, 12 says, be joyful in hope. Not just, let's be a happy camper church. Come on, put a smile on there. Don't worry, be happy. We need to be the friendly, smiling warmth. There's no downside. None of us are ever hurting. Come on, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. We can do this. He says your joy is rooted in hope. And what is the hope? The return of Christ and the kingdom of God made manifest in all its glory. That keeps us going. I find it's very emotional, but it's also a tremendous, I could say, foundation for my ministry that I'm not wasting my time. That this world isn't all that there is, is there? There's more to come, and that's all because of Jesus. Thank God. Joyful in hope. And where do all those values come from? Paul doesn't say it's up to us. It's not my righteousness. It's not a peace that I can make. It is not a joy that I can whip up. He says, the righteousness, the shalom, and the joy all come by the Holy Spirit living in us through faith in Jesus. It's a gift of God. And that's something we should really camp on and be grateful for. And let the Holy Spirit rule and reign. If the world can tell why we have a righteous condition with God and it's not our doing, and if the world can see that we have peace, peace with God and peace in our hearts, and if the world can see that we have joy even in the midst of tears at a memorial service, for instance, then we make a great impact. Because when we share the gospel and they see that in combination with the word of God, there's a tremendous witness. Paul says, let's have that be the kingdom values at our church and not all those disputable, nonsensical things that can divide people that God would be abhorrent towards. Now then, let's move on. We live to serve the Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We live to serve the Lord, verse 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. There's nothing wrong with living a holy life. It's all good. All good things come from above. I like to say to people, you know, if somebody says, well, you, you Christians have all kinds of rules and regulations, my, my quick response is, well, okay, that's what your impression is, but can you tell me where the downside of love is? Everything we're doing is rooted in love. Love God, love neighbor, tell me what's wrong with that. And that's where a lot of head scratching goes on because they misunderstand what we're all about. We can help them, encourage them, ask them questions, help them come to a realization that there's something very special that God has done and can do for them. I think that's part of our role. By God's grace, we're co-heirs, but we're not co-equals in that divine sense. We're his servants. We're called to be disciples. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts, looking at motives. We want to have good, loving motives. We all fall short, but again, thank God for grace. We are who we are in Christ Jesus. 
1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong by their own standards, or maybe we don't live up to our own standards sometimes, but in humility, we can show them that we rely on God's grace, right? They may see your good deeds. See your good deeds, and what will be the result with the Holy Spirit at work? Glorify God on the day he visits us. That's a reliance on the Lord. There's an hourglass shape in Paul's message. The reason that I, I did this in two parts is really because I didn't want to do it, but I had to for time's sake. And I wanted to include something that if you're a student and you really want to see how Paul shaped the letter, these verses are all part of what is called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. It's not something that I was familiar with until I went to seminary. It's something you can study and look into, but Paul has a very careful, thought-out, process here that is shown like an hourglass, and in the middle of the hourglass is the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God. So let's look at that in your outline there. You can see one is a warning about stumbling blocks. Then Paul went on to say that nothing is unclean. He's a strong Christian. He can eat anything. Then he says, don't destroy one for whom Christ died. Don't tear down the work of God, which is a parallel, but you see there's a gap in the verses there. That's because the kingdom of God resides in that middle, that narrow neck that ties it all together. Then he expands it again. All things are clean. Don't do anything to cause a believer to stumble. You can see the flow, but again, what's at the heart of it? God's reign and rule through Christ Jesus in our lives. So what have we heard? Reasons for warnings and affirmations. The strong aren't wrong. The strong aren't wrong, but they, got, they have to consider reprioritizing their freedoms for the sake of those who can't do what you're free to do. You've got to pull back. Values that lead to righteousness, peace, and joy are the key. So if I am free to play cards with my family, but I'm living in Germany as we once did, I won't play cards with my German Christian brothers and sisters in the ministry that we were a part of because they couldn't do it. They felt that there was something inherently sinful and wrong with it. So did we leave a pack of cards out on the table when they came over to visit? No. Did we suggest they play a game of fish with us? No. We just put it all aside for their sake. But when they left, the Martins could play cards because it's a non-essential issue. It's just nothing there to say it's a sin in and of itself. But their conscience wouldn't let them do it. The weak, those whose conscience or traditions prevent them from playing cards, for example, and a host of other things, they're not to seek control over the strong. In other words, we don't want to go to the lowest common denominator where we can't do anything anymore. Some churches don't have any musical instruments. Some churches don't do this, some churches don't do that. And I appreciate my brothers and sisters all around the world, but the minute you start making rules so that nobody's bothered by things, you've now forced the strong to behave, and they're not free in love to behave in that way. Freedom is the key, and the value is righteousness. The value is peace. The value is joy. To let everybody exercise their own perspectives. And then verse 19, let us therefore make every effort that leads to peace and to mutual edification. 
I can give up anything. Paul says, I can be all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. He's not talking about sin. He's not talking about known sins. There's over about a hundred sins mentioned in the New Testament. He's not talking about those. And he's not talking about those here. He's talking about things that are debatable, are non-essential. We might discuss them from a healthy point of view. Like, why aren't there any vegetables in lunch today? I don't know. It didn't occur to me. Um, it, it did when I got home, <laughs> but not as I was at Freddy's. Um, maybe there's something green down there. I can't be, oh, there's onions in one of the bagels. I think that counts, doesn't it? Okay, yeah, I think I just saved myself. Um, but, you know, these are the sorts of things that come up, and they're non-essential things. We could talk about it from different angles. I remember one guy asked a minister, if I smoke a cigarette, will I go to hell? And the minister said, no, but you might smell like you've been there. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can talk about things from a healthy point of view. You can say, that, I don't know, that's healthy for you. That's not a good thing to do. I'm, I'm worried about your health. I'm worried about you. I'd like you to be around for a while. Husbands, have you heard anybody tell you that? You know, it's kind of like, I'd like you to stay healthy and be around a while. Um, or am I the only one? Um, Jenny's laughing because I've heard those very words. But, you know, these things you can talk about, but let's not make rules and regulations over them. Isn't it love that would want to do this? Isn't it love that would want to motivate us? Can we give up our freedoms for the sake of another so they don't stumble and fall? Do I really want to hurt somebody on purpose? Accidents happen, but do I really want to be so callous and so careless and so unloving that I could say to a brother and sister in Christ, well, I know that bothers your conscience, but have one anyway. That's not good. And that's what Paul is saying is the problem at their church in Rome. They're acting that way. They're forcing their views on each other. The strong are looking down their noses and saying, what's wrong with you? And the weak who are struggling in their conscience, they can't do certain things. They're, they're looking at the strong and they're saying, well, if you're not going to behave yourself, we're going to have to make rules and regulations and force you to comply with what we're wanting to do or not do. And the church was at odds over de debatable, non-essential matters. And if you look closely at the book of Romans, that is the main theme that runs through the entire book, are these divisions. Divisions that God has no intention of labeling one better than the other. They're just non-essential differences. And that is so important. Let's make every effort to do what leads to peace. And the motive for this, kingdom virtues, and the attitude to be love, to mutual edification. Third, don't ruin God's work in anyone. Don't ruin God's work in anyone. Verses 20 to 21, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or any other thing. Card playing, you name it, put it in there. All food is clean. Card playing doesn't matter. But it is wrong, it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. What's he talking about? Well, again, he's not talking about known sins. He's talking about non-essential, disputable differences that can get under our skin, maybe bother our conscience. You can't imagine how anybody's free to do that, but they are, and it's not something that you're compatible with and you don't feel comfortable with. Here, in this case, he's using food and wine 
and anything else, but food and wine particularly, as examples. Kosher foods, non-kosher foods, wine offered to idols, wine that's not, it just, it was all a big mess in that environment based on their history. And Paul says it's imperative that we don't destroy them by being careless and callous towards another's conscience in their walk with Jesus. That means we don't want to belittle them. Oh, come on, that's just stupid. Tell me there's something wrong with this. Come on, let me hear your rationale. You know, you're beating on them. You want to get them over on your side, and, and you're wounding them. I'm wounding them if I do that. We don't want to do that. Gentleness and respect is key to what we do in any, in any event. Because if we destroy their, their conscience, they, we can't steal their salvation. We will not ruin their eternal life, but we will ruin their confidence maybe in the assurance of their salvation. We can ruin our fellowship. How many of us don't feel comfortable being around someone that's annoyed us or offended us or hurt our feelings or violated our conscience? You know, he creates distance, and we don't want to see that happen, neither does the Lord. We want to be together, even if there are some differences. We're all sinners by God's grace, right? Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. How important is it to God that when the body of Christ gathers, we are truly one in Jesus? So important that God says, stop your worship, stop whatever you're doing, get on board with the person that obviously feels negatively towards you and confess and repent and ask for forgiveness. And if they're in Jesus Christ, they may struggle a little bit if they're really hurt, but in the end, love covers a multitude of sins. And we want to make it right to the best we can. As Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible... If we can do it, if we don't have to sin, as far as we can, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that is such a great word. And then lastly, this. I think this is, this is a key piece. Keep non-essentials between yourself and God. Keep non-essentials between yourself and God. So whatever you believe about these things... Whatever you think, keep between yourself and God. Don't make a mess of it. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, don't use your freedom to the point that you might fall into an addiction. Could you have a glass of wine? Sure. Could that lead to an alcoholic tendency? Yes. Be careful, right? That's what he's saying. Just make sure that doesn't happen. You're not in your freedom it turns out to be an idol for you or an addiction for you or something else. Be careful. But the man who has doubts, the one whose conscience, their understanding, the wisdom that they've been given by God, is condemned if he eats. It just hurts them. Because his eating isn't from faith. And everything that does not come from faith, what their faith allows them to do, is sin. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. What it means is, yes, there are 100, approximately 100 objective, data-based lists of sins, 
a list of sins with that many in it, put it that way. And then there are sins that aren't in any list in Scripture, but they might be a sin for you. In other words, on an individualized basis. It wouldn't be a sin for that person, but it would be a sin for you if your conscience says, that's not for me. God does not want me to do that. It might be a history of alcoholism in the family, and you just don't want to risk it. It might be that you just need to dig into the Word a little more and learn something new because now you're curious as to how anybody could think differently or feel differently, and that is God's plan to get you into Scripture. It might mean that you're in relationship with others that you would never have been in relationship with before, and that's your opportunity to show them the righteousness and the peace and the joy, those values of the kingdom. There's, there could be a myriad of reasons but for you, as the Holy Spirit leads you, as your conscience informs you, if it's clean and clear and renewed in the Holy Spirit, then listen. Don't let anybody talk you into something that could ruin that, and then you feel guilty. They won't feel guilty, but you will feel guilty because that's your walk with God, between you and God. And that's not something we want to discount. Not everybody has to think or act the same way with non-essentials. We have a lot of liberty there. So it's paramount. In your relationship with the Lord, His rule and reign in your life, that's number one. Who is the ruler that makes the rules? The Lord. Can it be an individualized basis? Yes. And who reigns forever and ever? It's Jesus. Thank God for that. God has plans for us. God has plans for our health. God has plans for our economy. God has plans for our love. God has plans for our relationships. God has plans for our mission. God has plans for our spiritual maturity. Where are we united? We're united where the Bible is clear. When the Bible is clear, we are clear. When the Bible is not clear, then we have liberty. Keep it between yourself and God. And be careful. When somebody says, ouch, that hurts, or I can't do it, receive it and believe it and love them. And let the love of Christ shine through. And regardless, I know for me, personally, you know, you got to be careful not to, not to uh, interject your own walk with Jesus. There are things that individually, even in a marriage, are different. And that's okay. It's good to dig. Paul was a strong Christian. He knew that he had a lot of freedom in Jesus. He knew that non-essentials were just non-essentials. He could eat bacon and not bat an eye. I still remember working with a respiratory therapist at the VA hospital in Seattle, in ICU, and the respiratory therapist came along, and he was Jewish. And he says to me, we had a good relationship, and he says to me, don't tell anybody this, but I love bacon. <laughs> and I thought, okay. All right, well, I won't tell anybody that, except now I just did multiple times over. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing. Paul would say, I'm Jewish, and I'm a believer in Jesus, and if you've got bacon on the table, I'm in. You want to eat a cheeseburger? I'm in. But then he goes to the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem, as I had done, I mentioned it before, and you want to get a cheeseburger, and the cook behind the counter says, sorry, we don't serve cheeseburgers. We don't put dairy with meat at the same place. And, I, and what would Paul say? 
Oh, for crying out loud. What kind of place is this? I should have brought my own cheese. You people are weird. Instead, he says, well, if that's the way you serve a burger, then I'll just have a plain burger. Thank you very much. Jesus loves you too. You see what he's doing? He's adjusting. He's not insisting. He's a very strong Christian, exercising all the liberties in Christ Jesus. <laughs> but he will do anything to connect relationally with the world around him without sin. That's so key. So, is it possible, I'll close with this, is it possible that one person might consider something a sin that you don't and the Bible doesn't say anything pro or con? Yes. Paul says yes. Let that person breathe. Give them room. Adapt. Hear what they're saying. See how they're experiencing it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that may be invisible to a strong Christian. that You don't know why. But that's their walk with Jesus. And Paul says, don't ruin the work that God is doing. Now, if there's just a false guilt going on there and they're wound up on other issues, then you can help them, counsel them, pray for them, show them in the Word, lead them in the Scriptures, let the Holy Spirit, though, do the heavy lifting. Don't force. People break when you force them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, what a blessing it is to know you and to be loved by you and to love you back. You've created the church. The church is yours. And here, Lord God, there's the body of Christ. There's unity in the essentials. There's liberty in the non-essentials. And in everything, there's charity, love. And God, I pray that each one of us and it's kind of daunting, really, to think about how diverse things could get. But, Lord, give us wisdom and understanding to use our best judgment every moment of every day to know how to love and to be loved. And thank you that we can forgive and be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for who we are in Jesus. It's a remarkable thing that you've done, bringing such a, a disparate group of people together here and around the world. Lord, we are all right with you. Help us to be right with each other. Lord, we have peace that comes from Jesus. Lord God, help us to be at peace with each other. And Lord God, there's joy in hope that the Holy Spirit has brought us. May that hope shine among us and to the world around us that more and more people can come to faith in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread in the midst of his disciples and he thanked the Father for what was to come and he broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me, God's love at work. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is a new covenant. It's the seventh covenant in the Bible, the only one that guarantees your salvation. Six in the Old Testament do not. This one does. This is a new covenant sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. We have uh, some gluten-free bread here in the middle if you'd like to take that. Um, otherwise, the bread and the drinks are on either side. We just take the bread and then drink the cup and drop it in the receptacle on either end. 
uh, and we come down the middle in two rows as you're able or willing. If you're not able to come up, uh, would you raise your hand if you're not able to come forward? I'll bring it to you. Looks like everybody can come up. Okay, let's just take a moment with God, right? Let's just bow our heads. Let's just take a moment, whatever's on your heart. Let's take that moment and pray. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. Thank you for speaking into our hearts. Maybe we find ourselves in neutral. Maybe we found ourselves profoundly engaged. Maybe we're still searching. Thank you, though, for your Holy Spirit's work in each and every heart here this morning. We pray for transformed minds. We pray for those that are still seeking that they would say, I now get it. I am saved by what you have done for me. Thank you for that gift. I can never repay it, but it's your gift to me today. And I thank you so much that Jesus died on the cross, buried, raised from the grave, is coming back someday. And in that in-between time, you have declared me right this very day. Thank you, Lord. May this communion we share together be with you and with each other. This is your table, Lord, yours forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Come.
this morning? God is at work. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I just want to add, God be with Laura's uh, babies on its way. We pray God for healthy mommy, healthy baby, happy family. God bless them. Enrich all of our lives, we ask.
with new life in Jesus day by day. In your name we pray, amen. amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all God's people could say, amen. amen. Quick last note, fellowship hall, come on down for goodies. But I'm thinking about 1130 in about 15 minutes. Let's start with our commissions. So if you want to come and help us in the ministries, fireside room and lunch. God bless you. Thank you.